Okay. Should I say my name again? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Charlie Corby Coleman. Welcome to Nursing Student Narratives. Today on the podcast, Informal Caregiving, Part 2. Charlotte Corbett-Coleman is a playwright and screenwriter in Toronto, and her experience with illness, caregiving, and death is something she's addressed in her work. Her play, Scratch, a semi-autobiographical tale of a young girl dealing with both her mother's death and an incurable case of head lice, was nominated for a Governor General's Award in 2010. Charlotte's story is a beautifully, painfully honest depiction of what it's like to take over the role of caregiver, why it's important, and how it's difficult. I asked her to tell it here because it's shaped not only my understanding of caregiving, but also who I want to be as a caregiver and as a nurse. I guess I would start that 15 years ago, when I was 15 years old, I lost my mother to ovarian cancer. That process obviously shaped me deeply because she was sick for quite a long time leading up to that, uh, to her death. And being a child caregiver, not I wasn't a caregiver in the sense that there were people who were much more taking care of her. I was very much her daughter and a child, but I was taking care of her in the way that when you have a sick parent, you are making tea or making sure they're more comfortable than you and things you don't think about when you're a kid who's not dealing with that. After she passed away, there were a lot of people in my life who took care of me in lots of different ways, but one person who was very special to me was a woman named Linda Griffiths. And she kind of came into my life never trying to be a mother or never trying to overstep and And we just became very, very good friends, and she just started to fill this space uh, up of her home when I was away at school. When I'd come back to Toronto, it started to become my home, and she just started to show up for important events and take me out for lunch, and uh, she was a writer like my mother and like I am, so we spoke a lot about writing and had this very creative relationship. And then when I went to Africa... I ended up getting malaria and getting very, very ill and nearly dying and having a whole other podcast into itself. But uh, I got back to uh, Toronto when she really took care of me then. And I think that's when we really became extraordinary close. As you do, it's very intimate to care for somebody. Then I went on to graduate and she just continued to be just without my really knowing it, um, another mother figure. And when she was diagnosed with cancer, she was very, very scared to tell me. And I remember she had me over for dinner and we ate dinner and I could tell something was wrong. And then she kind of avoided eye contact and said there was something she needed to tell me. And I immediately said, is it bad? And she was like, I don't want to use words like bad or good. And I was like, is it cancer? And she was like, yes. And she was so terrified that I was going to have to go through that again. And, and, I, and I think in that moment was when I really felt oh, that that was a true mother moment because she was more scared about me, my reaction, than she was about her own illness. Um, 
I, you know, I immediately was like, I'm, I'm here for you. And we didn't really know how bad it was at that stage. She had just been diagnosed with breast, breast cancer. Uh, and it seemed pretty aggressive, but there had been a plan in place to fight it, as if you want to use that kind of terminology, which I find problematic, but should, you know, go after it, go after the cancer. And, um, and then I guess a few days later, they found that it was also in her liver. So it's the plan sort of changed and it was more about, okay, you've got probably three years, but probably no more than that. It was a really major moment in uh, my life to, to really sort of think about how am I going to be a part of this? Do, do I didn't have a choice with my mother. I do have a choice in one way about how present I'm going to be in this person's illness. I obviously want to be around her. She is like another mother, but where on that spectrum of caregiving do I want to live? And I went away for a month and I really thought about it and I felt that uh, I, I had to go the full, the full way and, and, that I, and that I wanted to and that I thought I, that I could. And I'm such a person who believes so deeply in love and loving to the full extension. And uh, I felt that there would be something transformative about it for her, not having, she didn't have children or a husband. And I don't have this thing in my head and I don't know why, but I just thought like for her to die in a certain way, I was like, she needs to love a child, which is not true of everybody and, and not, now in reflecting about it, I think I was like, I need to, I need a, mo I need a mother too, you know, and to say goodbye to a mother. So just not to say that it was this like great act. I think there was also a real like, in examining myself, a real need for, uh, to be loved that way too, as much as I wanted to give her someone to love. So yeah, we set on about a three-year journey. And she, of course, was not happy with three years. She didn't want it. She wanted it to be much longer, and she went the sort of a natural route that promised that, uh, which I was very skeptical of because I had gone with my mom, and we had gone for juicing in Mexico, and it had just been a, such a disaster, and she would gotten a blood infection. And so I was probably a little bit more skeptical. And I said really early on, I guess this is important to mention to her, that the one thing that I couldn't do again was false hope. That that was the most painful thing that I had gone through with my mother was that she couldn't believe that she was going to die. And that was so painful when I was watching her die and wanted her to acknowledge that. A couple days before she died, she said to me, you know, I still have hope. I still think I might live. And it just was so hard to hear that it was so hard and I I remember I went with my aunt and I just started crying and I was like she's going to die right like I can't I can't have hope if she's going to actually die like I can't hold those two things like I there's that's two realities that I can't and I had had so much hope for so long you know that she would live and it's like when I made the decision that I could see that she wasn't I needed to live in that place because that was how I could survive Now I don't know if I wanted with her, but I wanted with Linda for her not to be, uh, to her be like accepting of death. 
because I thought, I think that would actually probably make it easier for, for me to accept it. And I think I learned that that isn't possible. Like you can't say goodbye, like death is not, there isn't a right way or a wrong way to die. And everybody's got their own way and her resistance of it is, was also her love of life. And that's actually a really beautiful thing. Because I remember her just saying, like, this is, like, real life is the prayer, like, sunlight, like, the ordinary, like, this is what I believe in. This is, this is my heaven, is life, is, this is everything, you know. Uh, but that's painful because she was leaving that. So I guess with Linda, yeah, I wanted to somehow heal something. I think, in a way, it was selfish. I wanted to heal something that I that I didn't get with my mom, which was like some kind of acceptance that it was okay to die. I couldn't get that. Um, and then eventually it started to decline quite, quite rapidly. And uh, I was living with her at the time and we, we had to make a decision about if she wanted to die at home, which seems to be a big part of uh, death is that kind of negotiation and my mom had died at home and I had then lived in the house that my mom had died in and I found it very hard uh, I found it very hard to live there and I knew that I was inheriting uh, Linda's house and I had been living there for the last three years with her and I was very scared of her dying there also because it didn't seem to truly be able to get full-time care that was like all day all night so it was definitely times when it was just going to be me or her friends and that that scared me it really scared me around pain I was just so scared that there would be some way that I wouldn't be able to manage her pain and in the house and all those things but because it was what she really wanted even though she wasn't fully in a place where she thought she was going to die so it was more like I don't want to ever go to a hospital and, and be stuck there. We went down the home palliative uh, care route. There was actually a lot of different people. There's a social worker and their palliative care doctor and palliative care nurse. And then there's the person who takes care of all the, I don't know what they're called, but all the equipment, like all the palliative care equipment and the, all the different people at the different palliative care homes that you meet. But what's I think was what I found really hard is that you become, you're the administrator of all that. So I would spend just hours and hours on the phone talking to people of like, okay, so the toilet seat is coming here and the walker is coming at this time, but then there has to be someone who comes to like teach how to use the walker. And then they've got to have the social worker come and make sure like your house is okay for the walker. And, and that's great, but it, it does put so much pressure on the person taking care of them to kind of coordinate that. And you're also dealing with it. A, a, a sick person and I, and people were like well you should get more help Charlottesville but I'd get help but then I'd have to explain them everything and get them so caught up that it would just be so exhausting that I would be like oh well it's just easier for me to talk to everybody because then there's miscommunications and I had been put on a waiting list for there was a palliative care unit that was very close by and I really wanted to get on that but there was a long waiting list and I wanted to be able to have that option I thought I was on that waiting list, but I had given that task to somebody else who had called another place. You know, it just gets to be this dying, becomes this business, this administrative business. And it, 
I'm not very good at that, but I was trying to be, so. So we did that, and then it was, she's, her legs stopped working, and there were two floors to our house, and so I had to make this decision, and it was just so, I mean, what also becomes really hard is that you are then in charge of this person who is older than you, and who maybe is your parent or is being a parent to you and you're suddenly saying like you're you're not allowed to come down the stairs because it's not safe and that was really hard for her and for me and she was like I don't I can't you can't tell me what to do and I you have to say like you're not fully in your right mind but how do you say that to somebody who doesn't know that and a doctor can say those things and you can be angry at the doctor, but it's so hard when your loved one is suddenly responsible for telling you what you can or cannot do. But I was too scared that she would fall down the stairs because um, her legs were not good at all. She had a walker to get to the bathroom in the middle of the night, but I got really uh, scared at night that she was going to fall, so I ended up not sleeping. And so then I, I hired privately someone to do the nights but there was a daytime person who came so I hired because uh, you can't get a person to be there all the time so you have the nurse come like and come for a little while but there was a, a four-hour gap between the two people and I was there in that four-hour gap and I was then sleeping in her bed because I was so nervous about her getting to the bathroom and she got up and I was leading her to the walker and she fell and she fell on top of me. And then it was just so awful. Uh, probably one of the worst things I've ever experienced, just like so helpless. And I tried to, like I let her fall on me because I wanted to break the fall because I was so scared. But then she was on the ground and I, I couldn't get her up because she was just so weak and there's so many ways you can hurt somebody. By, and I wasn't strong enough and... I called all these people. It was like five in the morning. So I called all these people to try and get help to get her up. And uh, finally, like nobody, I couldn't get in touch with anybody. And my uh, best friend, Natasha, picked up and she came over. She biked over and then we both got her up. She was, you know, it was uh, very bad. And I realized like I, that I couldn't do it, that the house itself couldn't work and I couldn't do it even though I had help I I it wasn't a, it wasn't enough and I felt that we had to get her into a palliative care clinic even though that she didn't want that she did at that moment when she was on the ground say okay yes please let's go somewhere because I'm I'm done I can't do this anymore and then I uh started calling the palliative care units to see what could what I could get in and one bridge point was available and then when we were in the ambulance, uh, we were driving, and she was sort of talking, I think, about Midsummer Night's Dream or fairies or something. We had this talk, and then she said, I think it was like our real moment together. Where she was said, you know, I really love you, and you know that. And I, and I was like, yeah, and I really love you. And then suddenly she kind of like, I, th I thought she was going to die in that moment, but I also knew that nobody ever dies in the poetic moment. Uh, it was like this very loving, we were kind of clutching ourselves, and then she sort of closed her eyes, and then she like looked up, and she was like, ah, traffic in this city. It's always so bad, because we were still stuck at bay. She's like, we're only at bay and bluer. <laughs> she didn't even know where we were going, but she was like, just fully, fully <laughs> with it for just a rag on Toronto traffic. Um,
And then we arrived at Bridgepoint, and it was pretty, you know, it was like this huge relief for me that we had gotten there because it was been so hard to get there. But then the reality of what was happening started to creep in, um, and she was not pleased to be there. And there were so many people in there who didn't seem so alone and didn't have a lot of family, friends, and which was not Linda's problem. There were so many people showing up and coming, but it became also exhausting for her to talk to people. I mean, it's what she wanted and what she didn't want. It's not the same thing like having all these friends show up. You think, oh, this person is has everything they need, but it's a different level because she felt she couldn't be dark around those people and she had to perform. And I found that a really hard time too because all these people had these incredible moments with her, which I'm so glad, but as the primary caregiver, she was frustrated with me that we had ended up there and I wasn't getting those like amazing poetic moments, uh, which did teach me a lot about how, you know, you always want these goodbyes, but it's just not, it doesn't go, it doesn't go like that. But she was declining quite rapidly and I sort of thought she was going to die pretty quickly at Bridgepoint. But then she had a surge. She had one day a surge, which apparently can happen where you just have all your energy comes back and people talk about people suddenly being able to walk who haven't been able to walk and they talk totally normally and it can happen right before you're going to die. I googled it because it was so terrifying because she suddenly had her total wherewithal. She was eating like she had the day before she couldn't really speak and was couldn't eat anything and she was cutting with a knife and a fork which she hadn't been able to use in like a month and eating and said you know darling this just isn't gonna work and we've got to I've got to get out of here and I don't know I, I know you know I've got to go back home and I was so oh my gosh it was so awful because it felt I had to say no you can't go back because the house can't work, and I had also like given all the equipment back, the palliative, and I couldn't do it. Like I actually could not keep caring for her there, and I felt that she was a little bit upset about that, and I felt so badly about that, that because that was kind of our last conversation, and it was not. She was frustrated. There were some friends and family that didn't fully understand either that why can't she die at home? This is her dying wish, and. And I was like, it's just not possible, and it, and it just isn't possible for everybody. You know, my mom, when she died at home, like, everything was on the, there was a bathroom on the first floor, so there were no stairs, and she could actually kind of walk to the bathroom till she died, and that wasn't the case of Lin with Linda, so it just puts a lot of pressure on yeah, making the home a hospital because it's just not. And no matter all the equipment that we had, we just, it's not coordinated like a hospital and it's not, you know. So I have had to do a lot of work on like letting go that I failed in some way. Um, yeah, and then she, uh, that, that day after all that energy, then she just really quickly went and declined and was in a coma for almost two days. And I was there with her for a lot of it. Um, and then I knew that I probably had to leave. Um, and so I left. 
and I got a call at three in the morning that she had died and I went to the hospital and just don't, I don't, I do regret it a little bit that I went and was in the room with her because I find it very hard to be with people who have, my mom after she died being with that body and Linda, it's very, something I wish I hadn't experienced because it's, something is gone, something is very, very gone and it doesn't feel like they're, because they're gone, but there's something about the body without, whether you believe in the soul or not the soul, the person isn't there and it's, find it very profoundly empty. And then I made the mistake of, I didn't know, like, nobody, the thing is that nobody really says, okay, this is what happens when somebody dies. You got to do this, 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 and this. And uh, I was like, I've got to call, someone had said, you should you call a coroner. And so I was like, oh, I've got to call a coroner. Uh, so I went up to the palliative care people at Bridgepoint. And I was like, I got to call a coroner. And their faces all got really weird. And I was like, I don't know. Like, they were like, oh, I don't know if we have that number. I was like, you don't have the number for a coroner? Like, that's what I, oh, because I had called cremation. And they said, oh, you have to get a coroner to like declare her dead. And then I was like, oh, okay. So I asked the palliative care people. And then they were like, yeah, looked just horrified. I couldn't understand why. And then they finally got me a number. And then I called the coroner. And then the coroner called me back and he was like, this is a very weird call. I don't usually get calls from um, palliative care units. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you call a coroner when it's a suspicious death. And I was like, <laughs> I was like what? I was like, I'm so, so basically the palliative care people thought I was accusing them of killing Linda. And like the coroner was like, usually people are expected to die in a palliative care unit. And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I've gotten some bad information. I was like, I basically probably got it from a cop TV show that the coroner comes. So I don't know, but nobody told me. Uh, I found it frustrating, really frustrating at the time that a lot of the palliative doctors, until we got actually into the palliative care, but a lot of the doctors, and particularly the naturopath doctors, wouldn't say you're going to die or like this is happening because I felt like they were constantly letting her live in this place that wasn't real. And that meant I felt like it put it on me to have those more of those conversations or conversations like prepare a will. How do you want your funeral to go? Or all those things that I didn't want to be left not knowing. A big thing was with my mom, I didn't know what she wanted. She had an unfinished novel and I wish I had said like, do you want that novel to go out into the world? Do you, and Linda, just in the strangeness of life, also had an unfinished novel. So I was able to ask her those questions because I knew to, but it was hard because nobody else was supporting that language. You know, it was easier. It's easier not to talk about death. Um, but there are things that are useful to know. For me, the biggest thing is I think we just need to start talking about dying way before we're sick. We need to stop, start talking about that we're going to die and that and how we see that to become comfortable with it before it's actually happening. When I say that, and it's like, oh God, I don't want to talk about that at all right now. But I do think that that's part of the problem is that we're so, it's all, we, all humans are reacting to death all the time, but we're so actually not, not, we don't really talk about it until it's happening to us. And that's 
a terrifying time to talk about it. I couldn't believe the intimacy of being a caregiver. There was a moment when she was, I think she had maybe had diarrhea or she had thrown up or something and we were taking a bath and I was, we were, she was in the bath and was helping her clean herself and she was like, she just sort of said, oh my gosh, this is so, this, this is so vulnerable, you know? And I was like, yes. And I was like, this just feels like love. Like, this is what this feels like. Just the full extension of love. And it also gives incredible purpose to your life. So it was also allowed me to, my life have this like one meaning and that was so I mean that's all we search for as humans so often so it was like a very relaxing way to live too in some ways it was very stressful in other ways but to have purpose every single day um, and so when that goes away it, it can be very disor- disorienting because suddenly you're just it's just back to your life and just you and that's like not that much fun most of the time so that taking care of is like you are a friend and a mother and a child and a, like you're kind of everything to this person. If you listened to the story of Marge, which was in our last episode of NSN, you might remember something Alana Campbell said. One of Marge's home care nurses had asked Alana and her friend Elizabeth if they could do some of Marge's wound care. And Alana felt like because she was a capable person, she was being asked to do all of these caregiving tasks that she didn't necessarily want to do because she felt it changed her relationship with Marge. She said, if there was one thing that was hard on us as caregivers, it was that we were her friends. And we hated losing that part because only we could do that. It's similar to me to what Charlotte said about how painful it was to tell Linda that she was too weak to come down the stairs. That a doctor can say that and it can be okay, but it's so hard to do that when it's your loved one. And what it reminds me is that no matter how capable a family member is, regardless of the love and friendship that somebody who is sick or dying is surrounded with, the role of a nurse is still important because it allows family and friends who are taking care of their loved one to maintain as much of their relationship as they can, to be the friend, the mother, the child, the everything they are to that person. Maybe this seems obvious, but families and patients, they need attention, they need support, they need to have conversations about death, and maybe they need to be told not to call a coroner. How lucky are we, as caregivers, to be able to do just that. That's it for episode four. Thank you for listening to NSN. If you have questions or comments, please get in touch through our Facebook page, Twitter, or website, www.nursingstudentnarratives.com. This episode was produced by me, Claire Shakesgreen, with production help from Hilary Smith and music by Noah Reed. Till next time.